Okay, well, good evening, everybody. My name is Robin Archer. I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the LSC, and I'm really pleased um, to be able to introduce Professor Michael Cox. I mean, such is his contribution to public debate both here at the LSC and way, way beyond in countries around the world that um, I think many of you will find him a, a familiar face. But just in case you don't, um, Professor Cox is Emeritus Professor of International Relations here at the LSE. He's the founding director of, or he's a founding director of LSE Ideas. Um, he's also a research fellow at Chatham House. He convenes the American Discussion Group at the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and he's held multiple positions in multiple parts of the world, in Europe, in the United States, and in Australia, amongst others. And to top it all off, he's served uh, long in the capacity of a member of the steering committee of the Ralph Miliband program. He's the author of numerous books and articles. I counted 16 books, but I don't know. Maybe there's more coming, or maybe I've missed some. They deal with questions of US foreign policy, the Cold War, transatlantic relations, the rise of China, and many other things. But more recently, he's also been writing about the history of the London School of Economics itself. And it's on that work that he's going to draw tonight. Our lectures, as many of you know, uh, seek to commemorate and build on the work of Ralph Miliband, who was, of course, an important part of the radical tradition at the London School of Economics. And so we're particularly pleased to be able to hear a lecture tonight from Mix. Mick about the radical tradition of the LSE. Mick is going to speak for about um, 50, uh, 45 minutes, something like that, and then we'll have lots of time for question and discussions. Um, so can I just ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Michael Cox. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you for that final clap. That's encouraging. <laughs> Um, and, uh, ben, and thank you for those kind, <coughs> kind words, Robin. <coughs> Firstly, some thanks uh, are, are in order. Firstly, uh, I should thank the school <laughs> that gave me a job. Um, and in particular, I'd like to thank Craig Calhoun. I think it's always a good idea to start by thanking your boss, just in case. Um, but in Craig's case, um, it, it is to say thanks uh, a year on uh, for asking me to write a short history of the LSE in its 120th anniversary. Now, when people say they're going to write a short history, <laughs> dear, dear, uh, what's, what's that statement about? I, I would have written you a short letter, but I'd take too long. But anyway, um, but I've been working on it now for the better part of a year and a bit more uh, and discovering things I never knew about the school and, and some things I don't think senior members of the school would want to be discovered about the school. But anyway, it's still a work in progress. Uh, but without doing the work, as uh, I think Robin uh, suggested, uh, and, all, and all the work I've done on the book, and uh, you can see my library at home, me. I couldn't be here tonight talking about what I'm going to talk to you about, which is this, uh, this particular issue, which I kind of gave the kind of nice provocative title, Red Flag Over Hound Street, The Radical Tradition at the LSE, Myth, Reality, and Fact. So thanks to the school, thanks to Craig for asking me to take on what I think is probably an impossible task, but I'm getting there. Uh, secondly, thanks to the organising committee and to you for coming along tonight. There are many, many other things going on. And finally, and thanks to the Miliband family, 
and to, to all those associated with it. Um, I don't know if I'm the only person here who knew Ralph, but I did, briefly, uh, in the 1970s, so I go back some time. Um, but indeed, as most of you must know, this lecture series is, of course, named after Ralph Miliband, uh, one of the most distinguished professors at the, at the LSE. Now, Ralph uh, arrived here in Britain in 1940, escaping certain death in uh, Nazi-occupied Belgium. Indeed, he was one of several people who came to the school in the 1930s from Germany and Austria and from uh, Nazi-occupied Europe. So he was one of many who came to this country and to the United States, but several came here to the, to the LSE. It wasn't easy, as, as the biography shows. And after having seen uh, active service in the Navy during World War II, Ralph went on after 1945 to study here at the LSE under the equally famous, and here's the other connection, the equally famous uh, Harold Lasky, uh, one of the uh, true giants of the LSE, who arrived at the school from the United States in 1920. His position, <clears throat> that is, of Lasky's, having become untenable at Harvard because of his political views, he supported the Boston policeman strike. And this didn't go down very well with his, Harvard, with his Harvard friends, and he basically had to leave the country in 1920 to come here. And uh, through, through means and mechanisms, largely to do with his friend Graham Wallace and others, he, he got a job here, and, and Harold Lasky then continued lecturing here until his sudden and early death in, in 1950, under rather sad and tragic circumstances. So the lives of both Ralph and Harold Lasky are very much interconnected and intertwined. Strongly supported by Lasky, uh, Ralph Miliband, that is, was then finally appointed to a position and then taught at the LSE in the government department, the same department that Lasky, of course, been professor of for several years, for the better part of 20 years. And it was at the school, of course, <coughs> that Ralph published two, his two well-known, best-known Marxist classics, uh, Parliamentary Socialism, uh, published in 1961, and The State in Capitalist Society, which was published in 1969. So between the two of them, that is to say Harold Lasky and Ralph Miliband, they effectively covered half a century association with the LSE, from 1920 really through to 1920. 70 or just there afterwards. Though as anybody who uh, knows anything about the school's history knows and, and soon discovers, particularly if they read what happened both to Harold in the 1930s and indeed throughout his whole career here, and, and Ralph's to a very large degree, the relationship they had with the LSE was always a pretty rocky one. In fact, as Mike Newman shows in his excellent biography of Ralph Miliband, so alienated did Ralph Miliband and Ralph become by the late 60s that he finally decided to leave. And if you read through the uh, biography by Mike Newman, you can see how bitter it was at certain points. He wouldn't even come back to the school. He wouldn't eat with friends here because he was so, so annoyed by what had happened in the, in the 1960s, in, in the, the great troubles which uh, hit the school from 67 onwards. And no, finally he left, of course. But like Lasky before him, Ralph had made his mark, however bitter his departure happened to be. And it was in many ways a truly remarkable one. Which leads me really to my first main point, namely that however rocky their respective relationships with 
the school were to be, that is to say Lasky's and Miliband's were to be, both in, I think, fundamental ways contributed to the LSE's reputation for being a rather radical place. I think take out Lasky, take out Miliband, you may have a very different feeling or an impression about the school, but they were here for the better part of 50 years between 1920 and 1970. And this is something I should go on to discuss, but as we shall see, the story is a complicated one, as all things are. But if nothing else, this does speak volumes about the impact they had. I use the word impact in the proper sense of the word, not the current way that universities use it, by the way. But if nothing else, this does speak volumes about the impact they had, both through their various uh, writings and maybe even more significantly through their extraordinarily well-attended lectures. It used to be a great tradition at the school, to some degrees it might remain so, that lectures were just as important as research. The teaching was just as important as uh, publishing uh, well-referenced papers which then appeared in journals that very few people read. So it starts to say something really about them and their power and their power both as writers, in Lasky's case, of course, a book a week almost. Ralph was a little less prolific. <clears throat> but nonetheless, they also gained this reputation not only, as I say, as, as writers, uh, influencing uh, thousands of people at the time, uh, but also through their extraordinarily well-attended lectures. It might also tell us something about the school more generally, uh, that it could even appoint such well-known radicals to senior positions, though whether the school was ever very happy that it had done so in the first place, of course, remains a very open question. I've not yet read the secret archives of the LSE to find out what they really thought. The obvious question that arises, <coughs> for me at least, thinking about this theme tonight, is um, were Harold and Ralph representative of anything other than themselves? Uh, were they merely window dressing? tolerated by a liberal and sometimes uh, not so liberal establishment at a school, which was, by the way, just as famous for appointing Friedrich Hayek in the early 1930s. And, if you want to add insult to injury, for some of us anyway, Karl Popper in the late 1940s. Indeed, Popper would not have come to the school and could not have come back to the school as he said, he was in exile in New Zealand, which is not a bad place to be in exile, I suppose. Uh, I quite like New Zealand myself. But he would never have got to the school without Hayek's uh, support. Indeed, much of the, the early work that um, Popper tried to publish with publishers was rejected. And the way it got published, interestingly, was through the LSE journal at the time called Economica, in which some of his earlier work, which was, was not deemed to be acceptable, at least to you know, normal, normal publishers, was then published then. And then it was Hayek who brought Popper over. And what giants they were, really, however much you may agree or disagree with them, it doesn't matter how important they were and significant that uh, they were. <clears throat> so clearly this is a school with different traditions, and I'm not trying to suggest for one second that it only has one. Indeed, the same Hayek, of course, who was here, again, for the better part of 20 years, published and wrote The Road to Serfdom in 1944, while still at the school. Indeed, the origins of The Road to Serfdom, which I would actually raise one of the most influential books written in the 20th century, actually. One of the most influential books written in the 20th century against planning, 
against socialism and about the totalitarians in our midst, such as E.H. Carr and other people like that, and Karl Mannheim was another one named. Nonetheless, whatever you say about the book, whatever you think about it, and by the way, it was one of Mrs. Thatcher's favourites. Later on, she said that she had read it. We're not too sure that she did. There's no entire proof on that, but she claims that she did. She did read quite a lot, unlike most Tories, I suppose. The same Hayek, of course, who wrote The Road to Serfdom, and the same Popper who made his reputation by writing The Poverty of Historicism and The Open Society and its enemies. Both complex works displaying great erudition. Indeed, I can actually remember when my first university in the 1960s, which sadly was not here at the LSE, a much lesser institution, um, I was, the first books I was actually given to read by a political theorist was, you must read these books by Karl Popper called The Poverty of Historicism and the Open Society and its Enemies. I said, well, I, said, I looked at these books, they were so big. I said, you know, is there a shorter version, you know, executive summary, possibly. Uh, <laughs> I said, why do you want me to read it? He said, if you read these books, it'll be the best antidote to Marx and Marxism ever. I thought, well, right, okay, well, I clearly didn't read them very carefully. Um, going on in the story, however, so it's not just the story of Lasky and, um, and, and Ralph Miliband, obviously. It's, it's a story of many traditions in the school. But, and we might also recall two other points, that when Lasky suddenly died in 1950, he was not replaced by a radical, which many people assume would happen, by the way, I mean, he'd been here for so long, he'd been so dominant a figure at the school, uh, so, such a figure in terms of his lecturing style and all the rest of it, that everybody thought, well, there's got to be a, a post-Lasky. Well, there wasn't. There was Michael Oakeshott. Now, again, I'll leave you to go and read Michael Oakeshott. He's a very brilliant man in, in many, many ways. But if you read his uh, opening lecture here, which he gave his inaugural lecture here, that is not the lecture of a radical seeking to change the world. You know? The world is as it is. We are a ship on the sea floating, no anchor to find, no port to, no port to get into for safety. The, wander, the, wandering, the wandering intellectual in the world. Complex man. But, and, when, uh, and when, of course, Oakeshott was appointed, this was much to the consternation of Lasky's old students, particularly those from India who were greatly influenced by Lasky. Not to mention the left-wing magazine, The New Statesman, which berated this appointment. They thought it was a disaster for the school to have appointed him. It should also be added that when Ralph left Leeds in the early 1970s, the school seemed to be in no hurry to replace him with someone of similar theoretical disposition, or I might add, of equal intellectual stature. So is there even a story to be told? I, I can hear you think, well, what's this man going on about? Is there even a story to be told about that supposed red flag flying, or more precisely, fluttering, over Houghton Street. Some would say most definitely not. One who has made this palpably clear in the strongest possible terms was a man called Paul Hock, H-O-C-H. One of those damned American radicals, as uh, Lionel Robbins used to characterize the American radicals of the 1960s. So damned American radicals, those foreigners. One of those American radicals who had made his name during LSE's troubles in the 1960s. In his own short book by Hock, that is ironically titled, I assume it's irony, Academic Freedom in Action, which means the opposite, there is no academic freedom in a bourgeois institution, we all know that, and published in double quick time, by the way, 1970, Hock said about the history of the school and what he termed the bourgeois content 
of the social sciences it taught. This was not a story of the red flag. It was a story of the Union Jack uh, over, over, over the LSE. Oddly, the one department at the LSE he might have had a go at but forgot to was economics. Others have been more forthright. This, after all, was the department after whom one half of the school was named, the other half being political science, which we seem to forget these days. It, you can't put it on a business card, I'm told. And look at that, note the critics, the economics department. Its first professor was Edwin Cannon, no great friend of socialism and now regarded by some as one of the key uh, liberal figures in economic thought in the 20th century. Cannon, in turn, was succeeded after a brief interlude by what I call one of the very big beasts of the school, probably one of the biggest beasts the school has ever known, perhaps his most influential figure, the man after whom the library is named, namely Lionel Robbins. Now, Robbins, indeed, did begin life as a guild socialist, I discovered, during and just after World War I, but as somebody pointed out, the Austrians soon taught him the errors of his ways. He went to study in, in Vienna. He studied under Ludwig von Mises, under Böhm-Bewerk, under the theoretical anti-Marxists who were then very dominant in, in Austria, polemicizing, of course, against the Austro-Marxists at the time, like Karl Renner and others. Robbins was a brilliant linguist and a brilliant man in many, many respects, and he drew very deeply from the Austrian school of, of free marketeer, anti-planners, and brought it back here very strongly to the LSE. You could almost say that the LSE economics department was Vienna, uh, Vienna on the Thames. Indeed, it was Robbins who later brought one of the Austrians to the school itself, namely Hayek, uh, and together with another interesting professor, Arnold Plant, in the 1930s, not only fought off, not only fought off the scourge of the socialist planners who were all over the place in the 1930s, of course, uh, but also that lot up in Cambridge, led by John Maynard Keynes, ably supported by such brilliant economic nonconformists such as Pierre Estraffa and Joe Robinson. The school became known as the free market school, essentially. It's overly simplified, but I think that's how it became known. The anti-Keynesians, the anti-planners, the theoretical marketeers of their time. But it wasn't just the economics department, many others too of that time could hardly be described as radical. Whatever the Daily Mail then, possibly even now, might have thought or thinks about the social sciences. Take my own department, international relations. Perhaps I have to be very careful here, <laughs> given there's one or two friends in the audience. Distinguished, no doubt, whose first professor, Philip Noel Baker, appointed in 1924, went on to win a Nobel Prize for Peace in 1959. Pretty remarkable. And he wrote some really quite remarkable things, I think, on disarmament. Uh, but there were few reds, put it like that. There were few reds either under the bed or in the bed. And when one was actually appointed in the late 1980s in the form of Fred Halliday, uh, a former editor of the New Left Review, all hell broke loose. The Evening Standard even wrote the headline, if I remember very clearly, Trot appointed at, I in, in, at LSE. Fred, however, was not the harbinger of things to come, though in his own inimitable fashion did manage to do something in and for IR, which had never been done since IR had arrived at the school in 1924. He talked about historical materialism. 
But if one were looking for incontrovertible evidence of the solidly establishment-like character of the school, one should look no further than the careers of the various directors, which, by the way, Paul Hock also does in his polemic, who have led the school since it first opened its doors 120 years ago. The first, just briefly, W.A.S. Hewins. Now, Hewins was not an orthodox economist or a free trader. He polemicized strongly against what he called the Manchester School, which basically meant free trade, to be sure. But he was a supporter of protectionism. He was a great supporter of Joe Chamberlain. And he had one great love in life, the British Empire. Much later, in fact, he wrote a defense of imperial preference and empire in 1929 under the extraordinarily honest title, The Apologia of an Imperialist. Try writing that today. The second director, the world-famous geographer Halford Mackinder, was an imperialist too, albeit a most interesting one in his own right, whose writings on geopolitics are still read today, by the way. Indeed, I'm reliably informed that some of his ideas on geopolitics and space are favourites today in Moscow and Beijing, where they still take geography very seriously. <laughs> Clearly no socialist Mackinder. Nor was the fourth director, William Beveridge, who led the school so successfully between 1919 and 1937. Important though Beveridge clearly was. Beveridge was in turn followed by Carl Saunders, a fair-minded man by all accounts and a distinguished demographer who dabbled, like many people dabbled at the time, in eugenics, but who could hardly be described as radical. Nor could his successor, Sidney Kane, a civil servant who had a decidedly positive view about the market, or his unfortunate successor, Walter Adams, I call him unfortunate because he, in a sense, precipitated the troubles in the 1960s, or his successor in turn, Ralph Darendorf, the biographer of the LSE, the first German and the first sociologist to direct the school, and directed he did very well. But that Ralph, if I can refer to him as that Ralph, in his early days a social democrat and a man who knew his marks, had by the early 1950s become solidly liberal. Indeed, he later described himself as a Popperian, a Popperian, namely a follower of Karl Popper. Quite openly, well, the open society, that's what it's about, that's what I want. One could go on, Ralph Miliband, Ralph Darendorf, that is, was followed by the distinguished academic, Indian academic and banker I.G. Patel, who was in turn followed by a scientist, John Ashworth, who had been a chief scientific advisor to, do, to two governments, including Mrs. Thatcher's. And after Tony Giddens, the school appointed another senior policy player, Howard Davis, a very interesting, and, and my, my view, a very nice man, from, but, you know, I mean, basically a businessman. I have nothing to say about my current boss, of course, it goes without saying. Now, you might say, well, that's a, that's a bit clever, Mick, you know, leaving out two directors along the way who could hardly be described as either Paparians or Hayekians. The third director was a man called William Pember Reeves, a fascinating individual, by the way. He was the third. He was, however, the standalone Fabian appointment in the, in the school's long history. But apart from having a radical suffragette wife, Maud Reeves, most fascinating woman, by the way, who wrote wonderful stuff on social policy, and the even more radical daughter, Amber Reeves, who became the subject of a novel by H.G. Wells, with whom she had an affair, or he had an affair, Reeves himself was uh, no great reformer and rather left under rather sad circumstances 
1919 to be replaced by Beveridge. And then, of course, there was, and I've got to mention, of course, Tony Giddens, a good friend and the most influential social theorist of his generation, and a very dynamic director as well. I don't know if you've ever seen Tony lecture. You know, you get, I get tired watching Tony lecture. I don't know about Tony. But Tony would be the first to admit that his intellectual project, as opposed to his role as director, was not to reboot radicalism, to give it a new lease of life, but to rethink the whole socialist project, which he then did rather successfully or otherwise under the general heading of the third way. But then left-wing critics of the school would say, well, this only proves the point. That whatever some people might think about the LSE or the Daily Mail or the Daily Express or some kind of, you know, 95-year-old colonel up in, in the Midlands or whatever, nonetheless, this, the LSE has always been a rather respectable institution. A little bit pink with a dash of red here and there, but nothing else to recommend it to the comrades. As one of its early Marxist critics put it, the Trotskyist, by the way, C.L.R. James, who wrote a wonderful book called Black Jacobins, by the way, he once said the LSE was set up for only one purpose, to combat Marxism, not to propagate it. Still, we're left with a question after that long digression. If all that is true, and that the mission of LSE has always been to educate part of the global elite rather than change the world, a thesis, by the way, advanced by Mary Scott, you know, a history of the LSE, a very interesting book, a French book. Why has the place acquired the reputation it has? That's the dilemma. That's the question I keep coming back to. After all these directors, after all this stuff, after what Paul Hock tells me about the place, why then does it have that reputation? Why did it acquire that reputation? Is it purely fictional? Has somebody got it wrong? Is there massive misperception in the world? Is it only based on the appointment of just a few academics like Lasky and Ralph Miliband? Is there nothing to it? Well, I would suggest that there is something to it. Or rather, I want to suggest here this evening that there is an interesting and important story or set of stories to be told about the LSE's radical and critical past, which form an important part of a wider story. It is obviously not the whole story, as I've already indicated. But the fact of the matter is that the school has, at certain moments in time, particularly historically, has for a variety of different reasons been seen as and been perceived as being rather different, almost certainly very different to what might be described as a normal university. <laughs> Perhaps it is just a question of perception rather than the facts. But perceptions cannot be entirely separated from the facts. Indeed, perceptions are themselves forms of facts. And there's little doubt that over time the school did acquire a reputation as being somewhere where what I call politically dodgy people hung out. In fact, the red label, and I don't mean the whiskey, the red label which attached itself to the school almost from day one was one that its directors, and indeed certainly its governors, always found to be decidedly embarrassing. There are several examples of this kind of denial of what I think was going on at certain levels of the school by those up there. It's going on all the time. I find this in the history. It's fascinating. No, 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 no. No, 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 not, not us. It's kind of interesting. One, one, one great example is uh, provided in the 1930s, when it actually looked for a moment 
as if the Marxist Frankfurt School Library and some of its faculty would come here. In fact, Beveridge came very close to signing the deal because it was coming out of Nazi Germany. Why the LSE, you might ask, is a good question. Why think of the LSE to bring it? That's an interesting question in its own right. Well, in the end, it didn't come here because of a decisive intervention made by Lionel Robbins. He made it clear to the then director, William Beveridge, who agreed then, that the school already had a reputation for being too left-wing and socialist, and that if the school were to accept the donation from Frankfurt, this would make life even more difficult in terms of its reputation, reputational risk. There's another great example I found in 1940. I dug this one up from the archives. This is a wonderful one. As you probably know, or you may not know, but I'm telling you now, as you probably know, all aliens in this country in 1940, even Jewish and anti-Nazi aliens, so-called, were viewed as potential fifth columnists, the enemy within, if you want. And many were interned, some for a long time, some temporarily, but many were, on the Isle of Man, many of them anyway including, by the way, Klaus Moser, who later went on to become a government statistician. But before this could happen, before you could be interned, or they had to make a decision about what to do with you, uh, a tribunal uh, was held. And one tribunal was held in the decidedly left-wing ghetto of Hampstead in North London. And before the judge, there appeared the famous German demographer, then working at the school, a brilliant demographer, by the way, his name was R.R. R. Kuzinski, a fascinating man, fascinating children too, by the way, who went on to become East German spies, but that's, a lot, that's another question. Kuzinski, standing before the judge, worrying, of course, that he's going he's to take the next, a, sing, you know, a, single, a single flight to the Isle of Man, not much to look forward to, I would have thought, made his case to the judge strongly, and all seemed to be going well. That is, until he decided to mention the fact that he worked at the LSC in an attempt to prove that he was an upstanding member of society. This was not a good idea. The judge literally bristled, looked Kuzinski in the eyes and said in a meaningful and menacing way, I know all about the LSE, Mr. Kuzinski. So it seems did Sir Arthur Harris the commander of British Bomber Command in World War II, when confronted with LSE professor Charles Webster, who with another writer, uh, Nobel Franklin his name, had been given the enviable or unenviable job of writing the official history of Bomber Command, which was very controversial. For some reason they decided they had to meet Harris with the first draft. Harris was not the easiest person, it seems. And Webster met and tried to convince Harris of his academic intentions, writing this history of Bomberkama. Harris was having none of it, Sir Arthur. Not only was Webster an immensely respected diplomatic historian who'd written books on the Congress of Vienna and diplomacy of Castlereagh, hardly a Bolshevik, but there were two things wrong with him. One, he had written a book critical of Bomber Command. That was bad enough. Worse still, according to the conservative Harris, he worked at a communist institution dedicated to the destruction of the British Empire. And what was that institution? The London School 
of economics. Indeed, said Harris, he might even be a communist himself. Perceptions matter. Understandings, the way it was seen. It doesn't conform to that Paul Hock simple story, does it? But even those who had studied at the school and had come to love the UK and London and even the LSE were clearly worried about what was being done in the name of higher education at the LSE. And perhaps nobody was more worried than the influential American intellectual who had earlier studied at the LSE in the 1950s, who later went on to become a senator, namely Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who went on to write a number of controversial studies on American society, he then worked for Richard Nixon, even though he was a registered Democrat, and finally took on, I think, the very challenging jobs for an American in the 1970s of being ambassador to both India uh, and the UN. Here, Moynihan met the rising tide of radical third-worldism, anti-imperialism, clearly directed very much against the US. He was not much amused. But who or what was to blame for all this, he asked in an article published in 1975 in the magazine Commentary. He was in no doubt. It was the LSE, with what he saw as its strong anti-capitalist bias. Of course, this had nothing to do with communism at the LSE. He was quite clear about that, as Harris believed. But it had everything to do with a kind of British socialism, as he called it, propagated at the school. It was this that was causing the US so much trouble around the world. To quote Moynihan, has there ever been a conversion to socialism so completely road as that of, and I quote, I'm quoting him myself here, as that of the Malay, the Ibo, the Gujarati, the Jamaican, the Australian, we didn't know about that, the Cypriot, the Guianan, the Yemenis, the Yoruba, the Sabra, the Fellahin, to this distant creed. And where did this creed come from? You've guessed it from the, what he called the most important institution of higher education in Asia and Africa, none other than the London School of Economics. There you have it. In spite of what revolutionary skeptics like Hock might think about the bourgeois character of the LSE, or others like that judge in Hampstead, or Harris, or Moynihan, people have taken a very different view. But where does this come from? Where does this perception come from? Is it just purely misperception? Is it purely misunderstanding? Is it oversimplification. Well, I'd be blunt. I mean, nobody thinks of King's College across the road there in exactly the same way, or did think about King's in the same way, or UCL or Queen Mary. But many have thought it about the LSE. And the question, which I try and set myself now, and I won't go over this in too much detail, but is why? What's played this role in creating that impression, that understanding? A number of factors at play here, I think, and I'll, I'll run through them. The first point I would say is what sticks in the popular memory? You know, what is memory about? What's, you know, how does it play itself through in terms of people's perceptions? For what has LSE been remembered? If I could put it like that, whole memorialization, if you want to put it in that context. Many things, no doubt. More recently, Libya. By the way, when I said to people, I was writing a book about the LSE, I said, well, are there, is there going to be two or three chapters on Libya? Oh, okay. You know, that, that's, that's sticky. It's sticky thinking. It sticks in people's minds. But the, the one thing that comes up time and again, sticks, is what happened here in the 1960s. Time and again. Time and again. Now, there's much misunderstanding about the troubles. I mean, the troubles here at the LSE, not in Northern Ireland. 
Most of the staff, by the way, were not on the radical student's side, although some may have had some sympathy with it. Some staff even got the sack, by the way, including Robin Blackburn and, uh, and Nick Bateson. And the Walter Adams appointment, which precipitated the troubles in the first instance, that appointment stood in spite of all the student protest and then it kind of segued into all sorts of other things. The establishment won, if you like, in the end. To be perfectly honest, the hardliners won, I think, overall. But an image and reputation was created, and like all reputations, it stuck around for many years thereafter. I kind of call it the taxi driver test. Quite two out of three black taxi drivers in this town, when, when, they, when they dropped me at the LSE, they said, what are you doing at the LSE? Oh, bloody hell, full of communists still, isn't it? Well, it's that kind of memorialization, that kind of sense of where where the LSE once was, which has not gone away completely. But the reputation was there before the 60s. That's the point I want to make. If it's just about the 60s, well, fine. But the reputation was there before the 60s, as we have seen. Lionel Robbins was worried about it in the 1930s, as I've already pointed out. So too, by the way, was Sidney Webb, the key founder of the LSE, along with Beatrice, his wife, Beatrice Webb, G.B. Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, the great playwright, and, of course, that wonderful academic who doesn't get enough credit, I think, in this story, Graham Wallace. Indeed, time and again, Sydney, in particular, went out of his way to try and prove the school's innocence of the charge laid against it of propagating socialism. You can even see this in some of his early appointments. I'm sure that some of his early appointments are, in a sense, appointments to try and dish the argument that somehow or another this school, created by Fagans, was in any way had anything to do with socialism in some ways, you know. Um, the fact that he made the appointments he did rankled with some of his comrades at the time. George Bernard Shaw wrote a very, a very strong letter to Beatrice on this question. They also rankled, as I found out, with a radical anti, the most radical anti-imperialist of the age, John Hobson, who wrote that fantastic book on imperialism in 1901. Now, it's always, I've always asked this question, why did Hobson never get a job at the LSE? I mean, he'd written profusely on, on a series of subjects, extraordinary. And he actually comes back to this in his own memoirs. It's a fascinating story, by the way. Very funny, too. And he's obviously a little bit fed up with the LSC, to say the least. He was never offered a post at the school, and later commented that while people like L.T. Hobshouse, the, the founder of sociology in this country, and, and Graham Wallace, kept alive what he called the broad humanism of the LSE, others did not. Notably, the economist, always the economist, isn't it? Professor Foxwell and Professor Ackworth. The first, he noted, Foxwell, taught his students why not to socialise banking, <laughs> while the latter, Professor Ackworth, who was the Professor of Railway Economics here, taught his students why not to nationalise the railways. He continued that Henry Hutchinson, of course, had donated the money in the first instance, 1894, would have turned in his grave. Yet, the very fact that the school was created in the way in which it was by four Fabian socialists left its mark on the school and shaped its reputation for decades to follow. Whatever Sidney tried to say or do, I'm innocent. Well, yes, but you're a Fabian socialist. You were there at the beginning in the 1880s. You built up the Fabian society. You've talked of the transition from individualism to collectivism, etc., etc., etc. 
And whatever Sidney tried to do, it didn't work, I don't think. It would have been a lot easier, and I kind of throw this out as a counter, if both he and Beatrice had done what many on the left have done, that is to renounce their earlier views as expressions of youthful naivete. You know, In my youth I was a leftist, but now I've learned the, the lessons. I've learned reality, and therefore I've come to love the market. But actually they didn't do that. They did the opposite. In fact, far from moving what you might call you know, towards a more moderate position, Whatever one may think of Beatrice and Sidney Webb, we can talk about Fabianism and them as well. It's an interesting story. I think it's a fascinating one, actually. On the contrary, what happened is they moved leftwards with the times. Thus, in 1918, let us not forget, Sidney Webb wrote the Labour Party Constitution with its famous Clause 4, the same one that Tony, dear Tony Blair got rid of, you know, <laughs> a few years later. In 1923, it's a remarkable book he and Beatrice wrote, Title, The Decay of Capitalist Civilization. Oh, that's pretty strong stuff. Um, and then, of course, in the 1930s, and it just comes out in their letters and in their, their communications with each other, they really thought that with the coming of the Great Depression, the failure of that Labour government, the McDonald betrayal, the rise of five-year plans in the Soviet Union, capitalism was now over. The future was five-year plans. And, of course, in the midst of the World Depression, or the beginning of it, really, they espoused the cause of the USSR, for good or ill, but that's what they did. Later, by the way, I've just finished reading the Ivan Maisky Diaries, which are very fascinating on this. They've just been published by a man called Gabriel Gorodetsky. Very interestingly, in those diaries, even Maisky, the Soviet ambassador here throughout the 30s and early 40s, actually talks about Beatrice as if she were a comrade in arms. So my point here is really trying to make this it's a very simple point. But whatever Sidney and Beatrice try to do to kind of say no, their very existence, their very identity with the school, they couldn't completely disassociate themselves from the school. As they said, this is our child. Quite literally, it is our child. And so therefore that identity stuck. And there's no other institution, frankly, in this country, or many other, but certainly in this country, which has ever had that kind of origin and been so identified with those kinds of founders. And whatever one may think about Fabian socialism or the Webb's apologetics for, for Stalinism in the 1930s, that I think made a huge difference in this perception and understanding of what the school was distinct to, say, kings across the road or UCL or, or Queen Mary. And I think that is really quick. This in turn, of course, raises another issue. Not so much about who founded the school, deeply significant though I think that is, but who then taught at the school, that is to say the academics, and who was taught at the school, namely the students themselves. Quite often, by the way, in the history of the school, Ralph, Miliband, Ralph, Ralph Darendorf's history is, is a very fine history, but there are very few students in it. There's a lot of directors and there's quite a lot of governors, and there's quite a lot of very good stuff. I, I'm not, one, in a sense, in the end, depends on what Darren Dorf has researched. But there are very few students, I've noticed, actually. There's no easy generalization one can make about either staff or students. The, the school was a very mixed bag. I've already made that clear. Still, in terms of both academic staff and in terms of students who came here, and not all by any means, one can readily see why the LSE acquired the reputation it did. Look at some of those who helped shape part of the intellectual agenda here for many years. I mean, it's not just Harold Lasky, it's R.H. Tawney. It is the, the, great, the great historian of medieval Europe, and indeed of medieval women, Eileen Power. It is Kingsley Martin, 
who later went on to edit the New Statesman for, for many decades. It is, by the way, the first, the, 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 the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in 1945, Clement Attlee. Now, it's easy now to sniff at Clement Attlee, say he's a very respectable man. Nonetheless, one of the international brigades that fought in Spain was called the Clement Attlee Brigade. Don't forget that. And, by the way, Attlee broke with the Labour Party on the left in the, 19, in the 1930s. Hugh Dalton, the later Chancellor of the Exchequer, much criticised of him, but nonetheless, as Ben Pinblot, an old friend of mine, subsequently died tra tragically, said about, about Dalton, he was, a, he was an important figure on the left. Evan Durbin one of the, wrote one of the great important books on democratic planning. Nicholas Caldor taught here for a while. And the Webbs themselves, and of course Lasky. Even those who were not who were not identifiably on the left on the staff, and there were many who were not, particularly the anthropologist Branislav Malinowski, attracted many students who were on the left. It's very interesting. If you look at that, uh, that fantastic seminar that Malinowski conducted, always on a Thursday afternoon, I found out, and he brought into there a huge range of students who were inspired by his teaching, by his brilliance, and by his open-mindedness. And that kind of open-mindedness, even though he himself was not you know, a socialist or a Marxist by any stretch of the imagination, attracted many students. Moreover, we think of the school less in terms of its directors and governors and more in terms of its students. Um, it is easy to see why the school may have developed a reputation, and long before the 1960s came along. Again, one does not want to paint too red a picture. That would be absurd and unnecessary. As I have said, the students were always a very mixed bunch. But obviously, many were interested in changing the world especially those who came from Asia and Africa, or the West Indies, even the United States. Here, Moynihan was not completely off target, actually, even though I think his polemic of 75 was a bit strange. The list is impressive and includes many who discussed how to bring about independence in their own countries. Amongst the more famous were, who studied here, particularly in the 1930s, were Jomo Kenyatta, Kwame Nkrumah, Michael Manley, Errol Barrow, Krishnan Menon of India. Then, of course, there was... Arthur, the great Arthur Lewis, and Ralph Bunch, who later went on to uh, develop a Fabian strategy of development for the, for, for, for the West Indies. Nor does the list end there. The school attracted all sorts of st interesting students, women most obviously, who were always a presence in the school, and it made the school a different place. People often remarked about the school in that period, there's something strange about that place, there's lots of women and there's lots of foreigners. And it's not like a kind of standard UK kind. And I think that lent an enormous uh, vibrancy, if I can use that word, to the school. And by the way, one of the other things I've been researching is, how, <laughs> if I might be blunt, I mean, how many Marxists can I find at the school who, who came here, may not even have arrived as Marxists, but who left as Marxists, or who came as Marxists and then went home as Marxists? It's quite interesting. In the 1930s, there was more here than I think the, the history uh, of of Ralph Darendorf suggests. I think he's not looking for it and he therefore doesn't find it. Maybe I'm looking for it and I find it. That's, that's a fair comment. It is a fair comment. But one of the, one of the people I've actually found who did come here uh, uh, from Harvard, he came here from Harvard. He wanted to study under Hayek and Robbins because he thought this was the place to be. He also wanted to go up to Cambridge and study under, under, under Keynes. He came here to study in the end under Lasky. He read Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution and went home a Marxist. What was his name? Paul Sweezy, who later founded the Monthly Review in, in 1949 and wrote one of the most important Marxist books on the theory of capitalist development in, in 1942. Another, another extraordinary student who came here 
uh, with, with the later theoretician of the South African Communist Party, Jack Simons. He attended the school in the, in the 1930s. Anthropology, interestingly. Uh, Jack Simons was disciplined for his views and was, in a sense, thrown out for a while. He said it's the best thing that ever happened to him because it gave him time to complete his PhD. <laughs> so that's what we need to do with our students, throw them out for a year, and then they'll finish their PhDs in time. But he actually says something about the LSE, which I found in his own writings, called Comrade Jack. Take it or leave it, but it conveys something about the place when he was here, at least. And this is what he wrote, or was wrote in his name by a man called Albie Sachs, who was an old comrade of his. He said, I've always felt that the combination, I love this, by the way, I've always felt the combination of LSE and Lenin was a very powerful one. It's a dialectical combination. In some respects, they were at war with one another, but it was a creative war between two methodologies. The Leninist is the activist methodology. The LSE methodology is going out into the field and discovering reality through direct contact with it. It's not simply data collection. And later on, his, his old comrade in the South African Communist Party in the ANC said, with Jack... The scientific methodology of the LSE played, I think, a very big role. Well, not everybody went on to join the SACP, and if anything, the majority joined the Labour Party and no doubt fought for its victory in 1945. A moment in time when the LSE must have thought it now ran the country, given how many Fabians were now in government. Now, I'll bring this to conclusion. You might reason to suggest, well, this is good nostalgia, you know, you know, an old leftist like me, love it. You know, bring, back, bring, bring it all back. Well, that's not going to happen. You might reasonably suggest that was then, now is now. The world has changed as a result of the collapse of the Soviet experiment, the spread of capitalism and market values to all corners of the earth. As Tony Giddens noted, long before he became director, there was only one way forward, he argued, by the 1990s, and that was to accept that the world was a very different place to what it had been in 1895, when the school was founded, 1917, the Russian Revolution, even... 1945 or even 1968. Indeed, if anybody's ideas by the end of the 20th century had triumphed, it has often been argued, it's not those espoused by Lasky, Clement Attlee, Evan Durbin, even Ralph Miliband himself, but those liberal economic ideas defended by Robbins and by Hayek. This was the true revenge of history. A defeat for those who had once flown the red flag over Howard Street. Perhaps so, perhaps not. Maybe, as they say, it's too soon to tell. But 25 years later, the victory of liberalism, as it was called back in the 1989, the end of history, no less, has produced some quite startling outcomes, not just in terms of growing inequality, subject now under intense scrutiny here at the school, but in, form, in the form of the great crash of 2008, when that unregulated liberal model nearly produced another great depression. Moreover, the only reason it didn't produce such an outcome, it could be reasonably argued, is because government intervened to save the economic system from itself. And it's no coincidence either, in my view, that the one area in the world, or one of the areas in the world, which came through the crisis most readily was Asia and China, where the state still plays a key role in managing the economy. But that would be the subject of another lecture in this great series. Uh, but before anybody delivers it here at the LSE, it's always worth being reminded of one very important part of this rather unique institution's history, a part that I think can easily now be brushed under the carpet because it is too embarrassing or even forgotten altogether. We can't relive the past in the present, but what we can do is draw creatively from the past 
to do what any decent social scientist should be doing, that is to think critically about the world. To paraphrase one very well-known social scientist, Karl Marx, who died in 1883 and who clearly influenced Ralph Miliband as much as he did Harold Lasky, our role is not just to interpret the world and find out the causes of things, the well-known LSE motto, but through our endeavors make the world a much better place. That, it seems to me, is at least one of the most important lessons we can take from thinking about how the red flag flew or didn't fly so much over the LSE for many of its years. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, for that um, tour de force. Can we just um, start with taking single questions? Could you just say who you are and where you're from so that we know, please? We've got this gentleman with the glasses up the back to begin with. Just wait for the microphone to come. Hi, I'm Ramin. Uh, I'm from Department of Economics at SOAS. Two questions. The first is, what has been the effect of the school on American left? The second question is, how do you think the visit of Queen in, uh, after a financial crisis have changed the image of LSC? <laughs> You're from SOAS, right? Yes. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Um, how has the LSE impacted on the American left? Is that the, was that the question first? And then the first question, and then the second question was about the Queen's visit here to open the new academic building. Perhaps I'll start with the easy part, the second one. Uh, as you know, when the Queen came here um, to open the new academic building, I think 2008, was it, 2009, she turned to a young Italian economist in the economics department here at the LSE and said, well, why didn't you predict it? And I'm not sure he provided the answer that, uh, because he hadn't, and nor indeed had the economics department. What, is that, what impact has that had on the reputation of the LSE? I, I think no more than it's had on the reputation of most economics departments, if I might be blunt. Uh, or indeed uh, quite a lot of what I might call standard market economics. Uh, my good friend um, Meghnad Desai, who can hardly be described any longer as a radical, although in his old days was, gave a lecture the other evening and Meghnad said, well, let's be perfectly frank, this wasn't just an economic crisis, it was a crisis of economics, more generally. You know, the notions of equilibrium economics, the notion of perfect markets, market equilibrium. The tragedy or the sadness of, out of all that is that very, very little, as far as I can see, and you may have a better answer to me, has very little has actually changed in standard economics to, to respond to that crisis. You know, we are now 2008, we're now, what, seven years on. Has there been a rewriting of the textbooks in economics? Has there been a rethinking? As far as I know, not at all. So the Queen asked a very good question, <laughs> to which nobody had an answer, but I'd say that's not such a big a problem for the LSE economics department. I've got to be very careful here, you know. know. Uh, <laughs> but for economics, for economics more generally. What impact has it had on the American left? Well, I mentioned Paul Sweezy as a single example. It's one I, I found from Sweezy's own memories and memoirs, a kind of interesting story that he tells. I knew nothing about Paul, I knew a lot about Paul Sweezy. Uh, long before that, I'd read his theory of capitalist development. I'd been a subscriber to Monthly Review. There, I'm betraying my politics. You know, I like Leo Huberman. I like, I like the work they did. Paul Baran's stuff I thought was great. I had a lot of criticisms later on. They, got, they went a little bit too pro-China for me. But nonetheless, I'd learned a lot from Paul Sweezy. He struck me as one of the few Marxist economists I could actually read and understand who seemed to connect some of his categories to what I would call rather crudely speaking, the real world. And I thought Theory of Capitalist Development was a fantastic book. So in that sense, Monthly Review did have a big impact on the American left. 
I mean, in 1949, it was established an independent socialist magazine. It was separated from the Communist Party of the United States of America. It was not associated with what you might call the fringes of Trotskyism, whether the Fourth International Socialist Workers' Party or whatever else. It seemed a very credible, a very credible magazine, and I think it has had, it had that kind of impact. I would actually reverse the question a little bit, if you don't mind me being a bit, bit naughty here, and say, what impact has the American left actually had on the LSE? And by the way, in the 1960s, I think there's no question that those who had been through the struggles at Berkeley and, and, and Columbia, many came here as postgraduates, interestingly. And uh, Lionel Robbins, who was never, never a person, I mean, you've got to have a lot of respect for Robbins. I mean, he, he was a real warrior, what Robbins. I mean, a serious warrior. A formidable enemy if you were on the left, by the way. People quaked when he walked into the room. Uh, but Lionel Robbins was in no doubt. He wrote an autobiography of an economist. He said to get over the troubles. Uh, yeah, only Lionel could have done that. And he said, those damned American radicals, if it hadn't been for them, we wouldn't have had all this wretched trouble over here. You know. Now, I think that's a complete nonsense because I think the origins of the troubles were slightly more complicated than that and they, they're much deeper than that. But I think the interesting thing is not, not, whether the LSE's had influence over there. I think it's had influence, but I'm not sure it's had a lot of influence on the American left. David Rockefeller, after all, was a student here in the 1930s. Paul Volcker was a student here. In, in, the, in the 1950s. So the influence may be a rather different one, but I think the influence that some of the American, uh, the, the American left had here in the, in the 1960s, I think, was, was, was marked. And even though I think Lionel Robbins went mad about them, you know, for foreign agitators who brought their memoirs of sit-ins, another, another Berkeley at LSE, nonetheless, he, he kind of grasped some, some aspect of the truth. It just gives me the opportunity to say that actually the next Miliband lecture is called What Should We Study When We Study Economics? And the person oh. who's giving that lecture in two weeks' time is Professor Wendy Carlin, That's who's great. trying to draw people together around the world to deal with the absence which you've just drawn attention to. But can I take another question, please? Um, first of all, I have this gentleman, and then after you, this woman at the back. Yeah. So I'm Basil Henson. I graduated from here in 1949. <clears throat> and I, in fact, knew Rafe Miliband uh, when he was a student, right. um, not when he was a lecturer. Uh, reverting to the uh, title of this lecture, I myself would say that um, the tradition is both a myth and a reality. Yeah. Um, it's a myth because, as you have said, um, the Faculty certainly has never been left-wing in the majority of cases. Uh, it was a myth also because um, people like Lasky uh, really set the scene and carried on from what the Webbs and um, uh, Beveridge had been doing, or Beveridge perhaps less so, although I think he was considered to be left-wing in the uh, pre-war days. Um, I don't believe it's ever been a fact Mm. I think the other factor is the students, yes. as you rightly say, and I think they have done more to create both the reality and the myth mm. than any of the faculty, with all due <laughs> respect to you learned gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's, that's, thank you very much. That's great points, by the way, and I, I, that's precisely why I wanted to bring the students back into the story, because I say if you do it through the directors, well, what do you end up with? You know, it's, Directors are the governors are here to govern and, in a sense, to raise money. And you know, so I think if the story is told from above, 
you, you do get one type of story about the school. And, 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 and however strong I think Ralph, Ralph Darendorf's book is, I think that's part of the weakness of the book. The students don't figure very much. Not the students, not the students I found are the ones that he didn't. Um, so I, I, I appreciate your comments on that. The, the other thing is, of course, uh, and the post-Lasky period is, is, is significant. I mean, uh, again, Darendorf in his, in his volume says, you know, Lasky defined the LSE in many, many ways. You know, its image, what it was. I mean, Lasky was such a powerful figure. He was such a brilliant lecturer. I mean, you know, stories of students queuing around the corners to meet, to meet Harold. And it was the days when you brought them home on a Sunday afternoon for tea. You know, academics don't do that sort of thing. Send me a one-line email and I may reply in two weeks' time. You know, but it was a smaller, more intimate place. And I'm sure, as you, you well remember, we're now 10,000 when you were here after the, after the war. It was a very, very different kind of place. Well, one of the points that was made, and maybe you know more about this than I do, because this has not been written about... I've looked through the student newspaper, the Beaver, in the 1950s and the 1960s to get a feeling for the students. And I have to say that when you get into the kind of height of the Cold War in the 1950s, you've never had it so good, uh, complacency, communism is the danger out there, the Soviet Union, Hungary, 1956 and all that, you kind of get, the, get a feeling that the students move with the times. You know, They're not outside of history after all. And there is a very, very deep complacency and a kind of a self... But one of the things that is often mentioned, I'll just, just make the point quickly now, because you, you make the point about ex-servicemen. It is often remarked that immediately after World War II, many of the students who came here were ex-servicemen. Were ex and this lent both a, a, a... I'd say radical maybe is the wrong word, but it lent a, a debate, experience, internationalism, to different kinds of students were coming to the school. And in one of the Beaver editorials, I noticed that the LSE became normal in the 1950s, by which I kind of read rather boring. Uh, whereas immediately after, immediately after World War II, particularly with the ex-servicemen who came to the school, a bit like the GI Bill in the United States, very similar kind of dynamic. You know, you come back from fighting fascism, you therefore want to learn social sciences. It's a kind of an engagement with real-world stuff, and I think that made a, made a big... After Lasky, of course, there was, a, there was a deep reaction against Lasky as well. I mean, the speed, the, the, the extraordinary influence of Lasky is remarkable in his own lifetime, but, and especially on India, but, not, but here as well. Huge influence. It's the speed with which Lasky's reputation declines in the 1950s, which is really quite remarkable. And the only one country in the world where it re is retained, of course, is largely in India, uh, where, you know, he was kind of re re regarded, I think, as a, a major figure, yeah. Just quickly, and then we'll, yeah. Uh, as LSE in those days, there was an ex-service, sorry, an ex-service student. Uh, I think he'd fought in Spain as well. Yes. Um, and he was uh, extremely left-wing until the Yugoslavia crisis, and then he became a Titoist, and he ended up as uh, Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher's uh, political advisor. The, gent the gentleman that uh, our friend is referring to is no none other than Alf Shearman. Oh, Alf Sherman. Oh, well, it was Val Sherman. It's Alfred Sherman. He, uh, he split. It's a very interesting story. He, he, led, he, was, he, was, he was almost in the communist underground at the LSE, he said. He led the communist group within the LSE, which wasn't an insignificant number of people at the time, as, as I found out, talking to people as well. And Sherman split with the Soviet Union over Tito. He went with Tito. And little by little, he, the god that failed... And he kind of evolved rightwards and later on, of course, uh, you know, became Mrs. Thatcher's uh, speechwriter. 
and uh, worked work with Keith Joseph. In, but there's quite, there's quite a lot of examples of post-ex-communists who later shift rightwards and then become the best, best anti-communists in the world. Nothing like a good, good old communist to become a great anti-communist. Yeah. Okay, now we've got um, yes. this woman at the back. Um, Thanks, a great comment. Thank you very quite much. Quite a lot of questions. Yeah, no, why don't I pick up a few? Well, let's hear this. Yeah, sure. Hi there. Uh, Hi. Thank you very much, Professor Cox, for initiating the, um, and documenting the history of LSE. Um, the purpose why I personally came here today, um, mm, I'm just curious about discovering the identity of LSE, both the people who became a part of the institution and the institution itself, how it had evolved and has evolved. And what perplexes me is the utopianism of leftist ideas. How utopian or realistic has LSE been um, uh, as an institution or the students at LSE have been? And do you think, this may be my personal bias, when you speak of Libya uh, and knowing um, that the foreign minister himself was here in the 1960s leading student protests, and when you gave the example of India or Africa, mm. um, do you somehow think, looking at what history has done to these societies and cultures and countries or nations, um, has there been more harm done than any good in a broader sense? <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you for that uh, new neutral question. Um, well, I'm, I'm bound to say, look, I mean, it, it depends on your, your, your perspective on this one. Look, I mean, firstly, I think without utopianism, you, you don't get anything done. Uh, realism is both psychologically impossible and theoretically inconceivable. If you simply accept the world as is, uh, then nothing changes and never, never gets done. Now, was there, I, I still hold to that view, however much I may have altered it theoretically. You know, the world, the world needs utopians. However, it doesn't need utopians who, A, believe in violence, and B, it doesn't need utopians of the old form. And I agree that what, what finally evolved in many of these societies, one's got to face this very brutally, you're quite right. I mean, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I was a kind of critic of much of this. I was a great critic of Stalinism, and I was, much, I was a great critic to much of the third world socialism and the, some of the nonsense that was done in the name of socialism or third world socialism in many countries. You know, and it, this, this later on, I think, has come back to haunt the left. I, I, I fully agree with you, and, and therefore, to that degree, you could say it is, it is, it is done damage. Um, and I don't want to get rhetorical and say, well, how much damage has capitalism done? Well, it's done quite a lot of damage, too. You know, so, but that's, that's a rhetorical response. I think one of, the, one of the things of coming to terms with this tradition, you're quite right, is not just to celebrate it, to realize it, even to talk about it. Even to say that it was there, I think, is important. It is also to look at its underside. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not naive on this. I'm really not naive on this. I mean, to give you a, a very simple example, Beatrice and Sidney Webb's book on the Soviet Union in the 1930s. I mean, you know, the Soviet Union, a new civilization, with a question mark, Second edition, the question mark is gone in the same year as the purges are destroying the old Bolshevik party in the USSR and leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of, of loyal Bolsheviks and loyal socialists and many, many others as well. So, you know, as a good old socialist myself, you know, I, I was hugely critical and have always remained hugely critical of that particular book and of the particular idea, the a set of bureaucratic socialistic ideas which underpinned it. I, I don't think you can avoid that. I don't think you can avoid that, and I think we've got to confront that 
confront that, uh, I, I think, very, very, very strongly indeed, to look back, if you like, warts and all history. However, I wouldn't quite go so far as, as you to say, is it just done damage, damage, damage? I mean, firstly, I, I do find it difficult to think of the rise uh, and the de development and consolidation of the welfare state in this country and globally without the major contribution made by people at the LSE over, over the years. I think, you know, the, Beveridge, after all, was not a socialist, he was a liberal, but it was only under a Labour government, which was full of LSE Fabians, by the way, that you got the welfare state reforms which came into this country after 1945. You know, that is not exactly historical regression. Secondly, and I'd make the point equally strongly, that I'm not so, Indian independence would have certainly occurred without, without Harold Lasky. There's no question about it. But one's got to think of the important role that it played. And this was, this was in a country that believed in the British Empire. This was in a country that thought the empire would last forever and the sun would never set on the British Empire. And Lasky made himself deeply unpopular in this country with Churchill and a whole bunch of other people for, for, you know, for espousing the cause of self-determination for India. And for that, I think, you know, I will, ever say, I will ever say, well done, Harold Lasky, whatever other limits of his thought were. And I think he contributed, therefore, to the beginnings of independence for India. Now, you may in turn say, well, look what happened under the Congress, bureaucratic planning and all the rest of it and all the inefficiencies. But if you ask me, was it better to have India independent, led by Nehru, a secular Democrat, who kind of believed in some progressive ideas that he had absorbed from Britain, from Cambridge as well as from here, then I'd say I'd much prefer a Nehru leading India and consolidating that kind of India in that difficult transition than anybody else. And I think the LSE in that sense played a role in a very important movement of world history at that time. Okay, now let me, let me take more than one question, but if you answer them all fully, that will be... No, I'll, the whole I'll be brief. Yes and no, time. yes and no. So can we start with Matt at the back, and then uh, this woman here. Hi there. Hi, yeah, um, graduate from, from last year. I, I think the question of students, I think, is absolutely fundamental. Yeah. And you can't understand... Stu you, you, can't, you can't understand students um, only, only in terms of themselves. I, I'm thinking... And also, it's not an old tradition uh, left to the 60s, but I can remember last year we occupied yeah. the LSE for two, for two months. Um, over, well, we had five demands over the neoliberalization of education. I also remember uh, in 2010, during the British student movement against the fee rises, it was after Millbank, uh, the big demonstration, it was all the students came back to the LSE bar, and that's where everyone discussed the, yeah. discussed the aftermath. This is not a dead tradition, it's something that's, something that's ongoing. I think that also, if you simply look at the schools through the, the lecturers or the directors, you don't actually see that there's a relationship or there is mutually constitutive, the relationship between radical students and social movements at the university and, I suppose, uh, sort of non-left uh, academics, directors. In fact, LSE seem, there seems... There's a relationship there in the sense of that students, when they're protesting, they're testing their ideas against some of the most hegemonic ideas of the age, I suppose, the, the, the dominant ideas of the age. So when we were fighting the neoliberal university, I suppose, that's what we're... I mean, we're, that, that, that's the kind of model we, of the university we're fighting. So it's not an old tradition. The radical tradition is continuing, continuing even today. So, yeah. Okay, thanks. And um, now this lady here. Hi, thank you. I'm also a recent student, um, and yes, there's a, a great sense of irony in coming along to this. Um, <laughs> the general public does seem, to, some members of the general public do seem to think it's radical, and I quickly disabuse them of the mm. notion. Um, so, it's also, 
I can also confirm that elderly women don't always get their questions answered here. Um, (laughs) But what I would find more interesting is what purpose has that radical tradition, that myth, served? Mm. From what you said, it seems as though it has been used to consolidate the neoliberal hold on power of the institution. Mm. Um, I Mm. suppose that as well as trying to market the... um, Stunning chances of becoming a billionaire if you graduate from this institution. I presume it's also <laughs> okay. quite useful to pull in a few yeah. um, left-wingers who can afford to pay the fees. Mm. Mm. Okay. Anyway, good. thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll have a quick go. Uh, well, good to see the students are still, uh, still revolting. That's good to hear. Um, but I agree with you, and that's why, that's why, in a sense, I came back to the students at the school, because time and again, time and again, I come back to this. It, it, you know, a top-down history of the school doesn't give you a history of the school. Um, and, you know, frankly, I, and I, by the way, I've, I've found so many more wonderfully interesting students who came here and, and were changed by, this, by, the, by the experience of being at the school. Uh, one of my favorites is, uh, I don't know if you, many of you know anthropology, one of the wonderful American anthropologists, a woman called Hortense Powdermaker. She came here as a trade union organizer in 1921. A fantastic name, isn't it? And she studied again under Boroslav Manilovsky. She went back, did some wonderful work on Hollywood, very critical look uh, using anthropological tools. You know, there's quite a lot of others I, I've come across who I just didn't know came here. And, you know, so it's, it's, okay, I'm mentioning the famous ones, if you like, but uh, I think that is, it is an important perspective, and it can be written out. And by the way, I'd also say about the 60s that at the moment we don't yet have a decent history of what happened here in the 1960s. We have, we have what I suppose is, is a reasonable balance, but nonetheless top-down approach from Ralph Darendorf. We have the LSE secretary's history by Harry Kidd, which, you know, well, he's bound to write it in a certain way. And then we have Lionel Robbins' memoirs. And we do have some, some of the student memoirs, but we don't actually have, after all these years, and it was such an important event in the history of this country, not just the LSE, we actually don't have a decent history of 1968 as relating here to the LSE. Now, I'm not trying to overgeneralize about the LSE. There were, there were student you know, rebellions elsewhere, but LSE really became the epicenter of it, or at least became the focus of much of it for, for reasons to do with its traditions, I think, and maybe to do with its due geographical location. Thank you for that, that, that question. I'm, I'm sorry you weren't asked the, asked the question earlier, but nonetheless. Um, the, the myth and what purpose does it serve? This is a very complicated and difficult question to which I, I really wish I had a nice, easy, pat answer, which I could give you in 38 seconds. Um, all I'm trying to do and know more, firstly, is to, is to rediscover something which needs to be re- rediscovered. You know, I mean, people forget their history. I mean, you know, it was, it was dear old Leon Trotsky once said, you've got to tell the same history, whether you agree with Trotsky is another question. He said, you know, he's always amazed, 10 years later, you've got to say, tell the same history again because everybody's forgotten it. And, you know, it seems to me important that the history, which is often pushed to one side or seen as, you know, irrelevant, or it's not like that today, is it? You know, I think it is extraordinarily important to recapture that, both for the sake of history and both for the sake of a tradition at this school, which I think is essential to the identity of this school. Now, there are many traditions in this school. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a pluralist, you know. I've, I've done ultra-left sectarianism. I, I've got, I got over that, thank goodness. So I do pluralism in a very big way. So I want a, you know, many, many traditions to exist in this school. 
But one of the traditions which is, is decreasing in significance at this school, and it hasn't gone entirely, I agree with you, is that tradition which I have been talking about. Now, that tradition may take on different forms. It may be the, the creation of the Institute of Inequality, which properly examines inequality in all of its ramifications. That is part of that tradition. Um, the new Centre for Women and Security, uh, headed up by my good friend Professor Christine Chinkin from the Law Department, is another part of that tradition. You know, we can do critical theory of the best empirical LSE variety, and we can have an impact on policy and take that policy in, in a direction. We don't need to have a red flag to do it either. So what I'm trying to say is within the, we've got a tradition of critical engagement, of looking at the fundamentals of our social life around us and trying to do something about it. Um, and that, I think, is part of what I'm trying to do here, to reconnect with those. Not trying to say we could restore history or go back, but just to make it. I'd also say one final point. I know it's a long answer. It goes back to the webs. Now, when I grew up politically in the 60s, I kind of didn't like the webs very much to be honest. And I, there's something about them I still have a problem with. I'll be honest with you. They're a very strange couple. But there's two things about the webs that I, I seriously admire. Uh, firstly, I've got the huge admiration for Beatrice Webb. I mean, an independent woman growing up in a man's world. Boy, was it a man's world. You think tough today for women. Boy, was it tough then. And she had to renounce love, she had to renounce position, she lost friends in order to become a, a genuine social reformer. You know, and she went out into the slums, you know. She went and worked in a factory in order to improve society. And for all of that, you know, whatever you might say about Beatrice and her kind of late flirtation with Stalinism, you know, that, that to me tells me a lot about what a, social, a true social scientist should be. The other thing I'd say is about Sidney Weber. I mean, again, an extraordinary man in many, many respects. But, I mean, he had a vision for this place, and this place wouldn't exist without him. Whatever you might say about, about Sidney Webb, I mean, he's really the, the crucial linchpin uh, figure in all of this. And I think basically he did think the LSE... However careful he was and however moderate he was and however you know, pragmatic he was in his appointments, I think he genuinely saw the LSE as part of a, of a long part of playing a process in the gradual transition historically from what he called individualist society to collectivism. Now, one may argue in the end that ended in some disaster, but I think he saw the LSE as part of that. And uh, you know, we're in a different world at a different age, but I still think that's part of where, where I think we should be talking about the LSE today. Okay, um, let's just see if we've got some other questions. Um, I've got a lot of gentlemen. If there's anyone who's not in that category, please feel free to put up your hand. There's somebody over here too, by the way. So can I start? This, this man over here has been waiting for a long time, and then we'll have you. Hello, uh, I'm an alumni of the LSE. Oh, I was wondering why you, you underplay the role of um, eugenics. Yeah, no, I didn't. Okay, no, I, said, I, you said doubled. Yeah, okay, I, I will come back to that. I didn't, I, I didn't mean to, but I, I will talk about that, of course. Because it is really the intellectual foundation uh, of the part, LSE. It's part, it's part of the intellectual fabric, yeah, I agree with you. I'll come back to that, though. sure. Okay, um, I, I'm Steve Cooney, and um, I, was, uh, <laughs> I was an undergraduate here briefly in the 1960s. Um, first um, demonstration against UDI in 1965, yeah. um, but uh, then did a uh, PhD in international relations with uh, Fred Northedge oh, yeah. in the 1970s. Mm. Um, and I, I, I guess my, my comment, it's really more of a comment than a question which I'd like you to respond to, on the myth versus reality, I've noticed some data in the last couple of years since I've retired back to the UK 
that, uh, of course, uh, MPs or the dominant um, university background of MPs is Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. Um, but um, the only other university that ranks is LSE, yeah. and they're almost all labor. Hmm. So that sort of reinforces the left wing or yeah. red flag over Hound Street, yeah. you might say. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, 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 the question of eugenics I have lectured on before, and uh, I, I, could, I, 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 I wasn't avoiding it, I just, frankly, to be honest, uh, and I did actually mention Carl Saunders very, very briefly because he, he was one of the great theorists of population studies. He wrote the great books on population. He later, and, and the Eugenics Review and the Eugenics Society were very much part of the intellectual framing of much of the debate, both here and indeed in the wider intellectual world. I mean, one of the things, and I've done a se not a separate lecture, but I have talked about this in another place, talking about the history of the LSE. Uh, I didn't mention it here so much because I, I was trying to talk about something else. But there's, there's no question that – and one of the things that has both shocked me and, and both surprised me is to see how extraordinarily influential eugenics was. You know, uh, and, and maybe still is, but, I mean, going back to the period I'm talking about, I mean, there's certain things – I mean, I, you know, Harold Lasky writes an article in the – I can't remember where he wrote it – about 1910. I'm going, God, Lord, what is this? Um, later, the Webbs, H.G. Wells, I mean, G.B. Shaw – I mean, there's no question. I mean, I think it was a writer in the New Statesman, Jonathan Stevenson, I think, who, who wrote, you know, the left's dirty secret. And I, I, fully, agree, I fully agree with that. Um, and there's no doubt that its impact uh, was, was just here. The, the, the strange thing, and I, I kind of want to be a bit careful what I say here because I don't want to be misunderstood. Actually, in, in, in the debates with inside the eugenics society, there were debates within it, and there was what I would call a left eugenics. I know it sounds a bit kind of strange. And there was a right-wing Nazi eugenics. I mean, there was a variety of eugenicists. The left-wing eugenicists, and by the way, Richard Titmus, great social policy theorist, was in the eugenics society, and indeed. But he, he kind of, well, let me finish, and just a second, just tell you what I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. But he actually said in the end, look, the problem is not hereditary. I mean, this is where the debate really became seriously interesting. The problem is not hereditary, that people are inherently stupid or inherently inferior or inherently anything. The problem is that it's the environment which is creating the problem. And out of that debate against the right-wing eugenicists within the eugenics society, he kind of then put forward his arguments for social reform, getting rid of inequality, improving, improving housing. The other person I'd also refer you to in terms of the history of the LSE, he's an extraordinary man, a South well, he's, he's a Brit who goes to South Africa, comes back here, and by the way, this is a very interesting thing you should look at, I, I found it fascinating, is the, is the brief history of social biology at the LSE in 1930. Fortunately, now, Beveridge was full of this stuff. I'm really, I'm really unfortunate, I have to say. Problematic, to say the least. There's no disagreement with us on this, by the way. But fortunately, they appointed a man who hated the, the eugenics stuff. And his name was Lancelot Hogben. Now, Lancelot Hogben is one of the great figures of the history of this school. He was a genuine biologist, he was a, and he was a genuine socialist, and later on he changed his politics. He wasn't a Marxist, by the way. He, he came here and he said, this eugenic stuff, he said, it's complete rubbish. It's complete nonsense. You've got to combat this, you know, and he kind of, kind of attacked it here, there. He thought it was scientific hogwash, scientific hogwash. Now, this didn't go down terribly well. And by the way, the person who got, brought, got, made sure Hogben got here was Lasky to make sure that that kind of right-wing eugenicist uh, theories were, were, were trounced on. So, you know, that's the story. There is a story there. There's a very bad story to be told. I'm not trying to deny it. I hope I've tried to answer some. On the MPs and LSE, there's no question, yeah. Um, 
Skidelsky, in his, bio, in his rather interesting biography or hagiography of John Maynard Keynes, wonderful though it is, and he does write brilliantly well, and any stories about Keynes are, are always interesting. Um, he, point, he points out in a very kind of Skidelsky way, well, there's two institutions in this country which have made a big difference, the ruling class, Oxford and Cambridge. And then in parentheses, he said, oh, and also the LSE has made, a little, has made its contribution as well. So in, in that regard, yeah, I think that is true. It's true. I mean, but there aren't too many Tories <laughs> from the LSE. Indeed, I, I even spoke to one director and said, I wish we had more in the Tory party, but we can't find many. Well, maybe there are a few around. It's okay. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a decent Tory. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, the, the point is well made. If everyone's succinct, we can get in two more questions. Yeah, okay. So can I have um, this gentleman here and then uh, the bloke with the glasses who's been waiting over oh, here? He's been, he's been his hand up forever, yeah. Oh, it doesn't matter what doesn't matter, yeah. You, you, you go first, by all means. Uh, well, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, I think for a considerable amount of time now, the LSE has been quite right-wing from, uh, from the leadership. I mean, accepting £80 million for the new Acamedy building. For the what? From the new Acamedy building. Yeah. Right, uh, from an oil company right. is just unbelievable yeah. that it's allowed to happen. And to be quite honest, I think not... To, a university not to be, able to be able to produce students that can see the recession coming, <laughs> which is the most obvious things in the world. Mm, well. I mean, that is in itself is testament to the fact how right-wing this organisation has really become. Yeah, okay. And uh, I think that is very sad for a debate on what is yeah. economics and the future of economics. Okay. Thank All you right. very much. Okay, thanks. I'll, I'll try and answer that. We'll just let's hear from this gentleman and then, then you have a last go. Yeah. Um, Martin Bulmer, University of Surrey. Oh, hi, Martin. Can I um, push you a bit about the Labour Party in LSE? Because I think you rather underplayed it. Okay. I mean, uh, just thinking of people who've been, I mean, apart from people like Shaw and so on, the yeah. foundation. Yeah. Uh, wasn't Lasky a cabinet minister in, sorry, no, it wasn't, yes. It was on the NEC. It was definitely on the wasn't, No, wasn't, wasn't Webb a cabinet minister in the mid, the second Labour government? Yeah, 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 yeah definitely, yeah. Um, so that he's, he, he was very prominent at, at one time, although I agree with what yeah. you say about yeah. his general role in the sure. um, yeah. school. Yeah. Didn't say very much about Hugh Dalton, but he was quite a prominent yeah. economist who then sort of went into Parliament and... Yeah taught here part-time, I think, yeah, and so yeah, on. Yeah. Lasky was on the national executive of yeah, the Labour the Party NEC, and yeah. embroiled in a famous libel, libel yes. dispute, which I think made his position in the school difficult for a period. Very, yes. Uh, you didn't say very much about Titmus and his sort of circle. Okay. Although I recently read an anecdote about the 50th anniversary of the Social Administration Department, which yes. I thought was rather funny. Yeah that they, in, they celebrated its 50th, 50 years in 1962 and invited all the early graduates and members of the yeah. department. And they were all meeting in the Shaw Library and they were rather uh, embarrassed when an elderly gentleman who was a widower living in the temple came in and sat down at the back and they realised that this was Clement Attlee <laughs> who'd been one of the founding lecturers in the department yeah, very early on, who'd nice come along yes. uh, uh, in response to this invitation and they pressed him to come up to the uh, yeah. 
come up to the front and so on. Yeah. Uh, and then afterwards they tried to get him to take a, 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 a taxi back home or something, and he uh, said, oh, no, you take the 68 bus, because that was the best <laughs> way to get to uh, yeah. King's Cross and so well, on. Thank you, but Martin. It, that, that, in a way, was rather sort of yeah. odd, because, I mean, it, it demonstrated the ambivalence towards the political world, yes. in, in yes. a sense. Um, Okay. My other question was about economics. Yes. Compare to be a reasonably brief question because we're going to... D- defend Darendorf. I would say Darendorf does say a bit about some of the disciplines in the school. It does, yeah. Quite interesting. It does, yeah. But economics at LSE has always been more conservative than yeah. economics at Cambridge. Yes. Um, under the, the Keynesian influence and people sure. associated with Keynes. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, Martin, thank you very much for your question. By the way, I, I'm not saying this as a sycophant. I've really enjoyed reading your books on the, on, on the history of sociology. It's been very helpful for me, so thank you. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm plagiarising like mad, but I'm certainly using your, your original. Um, I hope I didn't play down the Labour Party no more than I was trying to avoid discussions about eugenics. But, I mean, you know, just to pick up on some of the points you made. Uh, you, you mentioned Richard Titmus. I, again one of the persons in my own research who has emerged in the somewhat heroic mould. And I know there's quite an interesting critique of Titmus, which has come from Anne Oakley, his, uh, his daughter, in two books. Very interesting about you know, the male character of social policy in the 50s. And I think some of the points she makes are very well taken. Nonetheless, having said all that, and, and, and Anne Oakley's insights are very interesting indeed, um, and very well made, I think. Nonetheless, I, I, I've arrived at an extraordinary uh, um, admiration for Richard Titmus. I mean, again, you know, there's some people who have gone down in my estimation and some have gone up, and Richard Titmus is certainly one who's gone up enormously. I mean, he arrives here without a degree, uh, without any formal education or anything, but he'd written a wonderful book on social policy in, in World War II. He was appointed here in days when, you know, you'd have, now you have to have PhD and PhD and another PhD and ten publications. He had one great publication. He had other publications, too. He'd written on population and the decline of population in World War II. Uh, with, his, with his wife. So T- Titmus was an extraordinarily influential person here. There's no, absolutely no question. And, of course, with, peop- with people, um, you know, his associates, the so-called tit mice, as they were called, um, you know, Brian Abelsmith and others, Peter Townsend, you know, play an enormous role in the, in the consolidation and development of social policy in this country, and, and indeed internationally. So there's no way I want ever to... Uh, Play, play, down, uh, play down the role of... Uh, uh, Hugh Dalton, again, is somebody I, I've read in, in some detail now, but not only the biographies of him by Ben Pimlock, but his, his, his various works on, fina- on finance and inequality. In the, there's a very interesting chunk in, ben, in, in Pimlock's own diaries where he actually says, I wrote this book on, on inequalities and, and various things of inequality in the early 1920s when he was a lecturer here in economics. He actually got a full-time job here before he went off in, and joined... The, uh, joined politics. And he said, you know, uh, Beveridge, the then director, would say, oh, I don't think this is going to go down very well with the governors, you know. And, 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 you know, Dalton is saying, well, the pressure is coming on us, you know, to kind of conform. But, you know, he didn't. He actually did not. And, and nor, of course, did, um, nor, of course, did Lasky. Uh, Lasky was on the NEC. Your, your point about uh, Attlee, I always like the stories about Clement Attlee here. Clement Attlee became a lecturer here largely because the, the foundation from the, the Tata Foundation I mean, that's another interesting thing. We always think of philanthropists as being bad people because they kind of pull strings and are kind of, you know, you know doing all sorts of like Rockefeller, you know, the whole thing about Rockefeller and all that kind of stuff in the 1930s. But the, the Ram and Tata Foundation, 
which started putting its money in here in 1912 and 1913, on the back of them, and they wanted to study poverty, destitution, and various other issues, they put the money here, and on the back of that, R.H. Tawney got his first job, and I think Clement Attlee also got his first appointment here. And Clement Attlee actually used to take students down the East End of London to, to actually to see poverty, not just to talk about it, but to go down there and to see what it was really like. He also was one of the very only academics I've ever known who said he thought he was being paid too much. I've never known academics ever to say that, but he, that's what he also said. He was a very modest guy, and Churchill's snide remark about him says more about Churchill. You know, he's much to be modest about. I think this is what actually makes Attlee a very, very, a very, you know, interesting, but actually in his own quiet way, a very great individual, uh, and who did more, more to social progress in this country than probably anybody else in the, in the period of the 20th century. On the question, finally, of quite right-wing... Look, I, I, I think it's a bit more... Co- I just think... I, mean, I don't want to kind of go into this. I, you know, are there some conservatives here at the LSE? Well, of course there are, and so there should be. Um, <laughs> are there people who are followers of Karl Popper? No, undoubtedly. Are there a few Hayekians around? I, I hope so. And are there some people around who call themselves Marxists? I think there are. And, and, and the students, too, of course, play a big role in this in terms of the engagement and, and criticising and, and, and trying to make academics think about the world in which they live. And I think that engagement between students and academics is crucial because I think one of the things we've lost over the last few years because of the pressures on academics, and I'll be fair on academics for a moment, just for, well, I, I think I always have been, is the pressures on academics is to publish, 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 research, research, buyouts, 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 buyouts. I'll get another three-year grant from the EU. Students, huh? what are they, you know, and particularly the undergraduates. I, I, I find that, I'm not saying all of my, my colleagues are like that at all. There's some great teachers here, but we do have a problem on, on that front, I think. And it's going to become a bigger problem as the university changes and transitions. And I think that, that is the dilemma I see today. The pressures on, on all of us at the moment in higher education, not just at the school, are driving people away from valuing teaching, I believe. Uh, I think they're driving us away because of the size of education. I'm not saying we should have fewer students. But you can't have that intimacy and that relationship with the students you could do in the days of Lasky and, and Ralph, I'm sure, had the, had the same kind of relationship with students. And, and the other thing, coming back onto your point, there's absolutely no question, look, you're always going to be under pressure on money. You know, since the late 1980s, and this comes back to your point, you know, government, successive governments, beginning with Mrs. Thatcher and running through the Labour government, have said to universities, raise your money. Government grants are going to become less. Students are going to have to pay fees. It is a market economy, a market society, and you're going to have to sink and swim within that market society. And that, that is a dilemma, and it puts enormous pressures on institutions because if they don't raise the money, you can't have the halls like this. I mean, you know, I mean, I'll be perfectly blunt with you. There is a problem. There is a dilemma. There is a, there is a, there's, a, there's an issue. We can't run away with it by saying, you know, we don't take it because we don't take the government's not going to supply it. Let's be honest. You know, it's the students who, are our, who pay, most of our, pay most of our fees today. So I, I would kind of slightly not, you know, be overly defensive of the LSE. I mean, there's many things about it I would want to be critical of. But I, I think the idea that it's quite right-wing... Well, there's two problems with that, if I might say so. One is most people don't believe that. Perception's kind of rather different. Now, maybe the reality is on the ground is different than the actual perception. But I think perceptions do matter. And frankly, I think those perceptions are important in shaping what the LSE is. And in part, it still keeps quite a lot of, I think, still keeps quite a lot of academics at the school engaged. 
in terms of social research, in terms of critical research. You know, the Institute of Inequality I've mentioned, the, 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 women's, the Women in Security. There are many, many other initiatives around the school that the school has taken and is taking. And I think they're taking in part because they see this as part of an LSE tradition of critically engaging and engaging and not being, you know, too kowtowing to power. Now, I, I don't want to idealize it, but I do think that it's still part of an important tradition here. And that's the one we've got to build on if we want to build a healthy open, vibrant debate going on at the school for the next hundred years. I won't be around at the end of the next hundred years, but I hope this, it still carries on. I hope well, students carry it forward too. Thank you very much. Um, I think I also want to thank the audience. We've had some very well-informed questions um, from students past and present. Oh, um, yeah. And I think that those questions have been sparked by a great talk. I mean, it's a talk where you started by drawing attention to the fact that prima facie <laughs> these leftist traditions could be seen as window dressing, but that yet, at some level, both reputationally and beyond that, in the foundation and in the protest behaviour and in some of the staff and the students, there was a reality hmm. to this, uh, this uh, tincture of red. And you went on at the end to draw the conclusion that we should draw creatively from this past mm. in thinking about the problems we have at the present. I think that's a very pertinent way in which to end. Can you join me in thanking yeah. our speaker, <laughs> Professor? Thank you very much.